everybody, and welcome to the weekly message for The Table. The Table is a church in Davenport, Iowa, where people are moving from greed toward generosity, from violence toward peacemaking, from isolation toward neighborliness, and from fear toward faith. I'm Pastor Rob Leverage, and it is good to be with you on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke. It is the same scripture that we read last week because we are doing a sermon in two parts, uh, two messages, two weeks in a row on the same parable from Jesus. It is known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So let's go ahead and open our hearts, open our ears, and give a good listen. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham, the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they can also not come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is our second week exploring the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And last week we focused uh, mostly on the rich man, who he was, uh, what was his side of the story, and how can his example or his story guide our thinking about greed and generosity and neighborliness and goodwill in our lives? This week, our focus is going to be on Lazarus, the man who lived in poverty and whose hunger and need didn't appear to matter to the people around him, but who found comfort in the end. Well, just as in last week's exploration of the rich man, our examination of a very few specific details in this parable will reveal a great deal about the character and experience of Lazarus. So let's start with his name. First of all, we know his name. It is Lazarus. Did you know that this is the only parable of Jesus? in which a character has a name 
Yeah. In fact, two characters herein have names, Lazarus and Abraham. Okay. But in all of the other parables that Jesus told in which a man did this, a woman did that, a landowner, a farmer, a shepherd encountered some opportunity or dilemma and they responded in such and such a way and that's the, that's the parable, we never know their names. The prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the woman with the lost coin. We don't know these people's names. I mean, it, it was not Gina who lost the coin, right? We, you know, I don't know if, it was, if it's just determined that, you know, it's not necessary to share names in parables. Or maybe, uh, in most cases, sharing a name would be detrimental to uh, the work of the parable. If you and I know that the land owner's name was such and such, maybe, I'm just, just a guess, maybe we're more comfortable keeping our distance because the story is about him, right? But if we we're only told that it is a person, <laughs> you know, maybe we can more readily see the story as it is about us, right? It's about you. It's about me. It's about a person, right? And so Jesus's parables never provide names for the characters except this one. So why? Why do we know Lazarus' name? In our consideration of this question, we should ponder the fact that Lazarus may be the most humbled person described in any gospel parable. Um, I don't want to argue over that point. There are other humble characters. There are characters in some of the stories who are victims of violence, such as in the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the wicked tenants. Um, so maybe some characters, maybe, had a life that was as hard as Lazarus. Humility and hardship are not a competition. But the fact that Lazarus is penniless and he is destitute, and he is sick. And he's the only parable character that Jesus calls by name. I mean, that ought to alert us to something about Jesus' point of view, and perhaps even about the character of God. Okay. I don't know if you've heard of this scholar named Gustavo Gutierrez. He's a Catholic priest, and he is, um, I think he's a professor emeritus at Notre Dame, but he is considered now to be the father of an, a whole area of academic study, an entire world of Christian scholarship known as liberation theology. And Guterres uh, coined a phrase in the 1960s, actually, which is now common parlance in many Christian traditions. It's the statement that Quote, God has a preferential option for the poor. God has a preferential option for the poor. Now, this is a truth claim for the Christian religion. It does not mean that God only loves poor people or that God loves poor people more than God loves people who are not poor. Um, but it does mean that God is on the side of the poor. And God is not aligned with the poor against other people as in a game of like spiritual dodgeball or, or something like that. But it's the material concerns of people who are living in poverty. Will I have enough food? Can I feed my children? Will we have shelter? Will we have medical care? 
Okay? These are the concerns of the poor, and these are the concerns of God. Okay? That is the perspective of liberation theology. And liberation theology sees Jesus as always on the side of the poor. And in fact, liberation the theology sees Christ in poor people. That Christ lives among the poor in every time and place. And so it is the duty of the Christian, for example, in our time to see Jesus in those images of Haitian refugees who are uh, <laughs> being so badly mistreated at the border of our nation, right? That Christ is there, okay? And that is the perspective of liberation theology. In an interview from 2011, Gutierrez, who is now quite old, he's actually in his 90s today, but he's, he is still living. I don't know if he's still teaching. But in 2011, he was quoted in an interview. Uh, he's probably said this many times, but I was reading this recently. And he emphasized that God's prefer preferential option for the poor does not mean <laughs> that poverty is good. <laughs> it doesn't mean that poverty is desirable. Um, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor, he didn't say, blessed is poverty. Okay, that's important for us to keep in mind. True material poverty in which people are malnourished and they have no access to medical care or they live in shanty towns where houses fall and collapse on top of kids whenever the wind picks up. Right? This kind of poverty is the result of systemic evil. And God cares for people who are living through this kind of evil. Okay? So for Jesus to call only one character in all of his parables by name and show that kind of personal regard for a character only once, and it happens to be the one character whom he explicitly describes as living in crushing poverty. Well, this is a testament that Jesus sees and knows and values the lives of people living in this hardship. See? Okay, so the name itself now. <laughs> it's a parable. So, Jesus could have called the impoverished character by any name. But this character is not Benjamin, or Ephraim, or David, or Naphtali, or Jethro, or Steve. Right? He is Lazarus. Does that tell us anything? What, what is with the name itself, Lazarus? Well, let's just talk for just a second about Bible names. Uh, when you read names in an English Bible that you might, you know, have in the pew at church or your own personal Bible, um, some of the names that you read, like Joseph or, for example, Rachel, these names appear in both the Old Testament books and the New Testament books, and they're spelled and they're pronounced the same. But other names in the New Testament, you, if you read a name in the New Testament, you might not realize that this name is actually an Old Testament name as well. So, for example, Mary, <laughs> the most common name in the New Testament, well, there's no Mary in the Old Testament. Did the name Mary just appear and become wildly popular throughout Palestine during the time of Jesus? 
No. Uh, Mary is actually the name Miriam. See, um, Miriam, you may recall, is a heroic young woman who saved the life of her little baby brother Moses in the book of Exodus. Okay, and uh, Miriam has actually quite a long story in the book of Exodus and 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 beyond. Um, and Miriam is the name Mary. Mary is the name Miriam. The reason that the names are pronounced differently and be and spelled differently in English Bibles is because of the the history of the text and the translations. Because the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language, the New Testament was written in ancient Greek. So um, Miriam is an English translation of a Hebrew name. Okay, but. Mary is like an English translation of a Latinized Greek translation of a Hebrew name. And that's how they turn out to be different. The name Jesus actually is the, just the same. Okay, So Jesus is a, an English version of a Latin version of a Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Yeshua, Yeshua, some people might say. Okay, and if that name is translated directly into English, it comes out as Joshua. Okay, so Jesus and Joshua are actually the same name. You follow? It's a little bit, I don't know. You have to kind of nerd, geek out on this stuff to really get, you know, I don't know. Whatever. Maybe this is interesting, maybe it's not. But, okay, <laughs> I think it's relevant because in the one parable where Jesus told uh, the one parable that Jesus told in which he gave one of the characters a name, he called that character Lazarus. So it's worth us asking, like, what is the origin of the name Lazarus? Um, <laughs> okay, well, there are actually two names in the Torah that are different names, but they are nearly identical and they mean almost the same thing. But Lazarus, scholars sort of argue or disagree a little bit. It, it, Lazarus is either an approximation of one or the other of those two names, or maybe a combination of the two. Okay, but the two names are Eliasar and Eliasar. Okay, spelled slightly differently. Okay, and both of these names mean some version of God helps. Okay, it might be God is my help or help will come from God, but something like that. That is the meaning of this name, Eliasar, which is translated as Lazarus. Okay, but let's, let's just keep uh, digging and into the weeds and geek out a little bit here. Who were the people in the Old Testament or in the Torah with these names? Well, if we dig into that, it gets a little interesting. Okay, so the first one or the first spelling, Eliasar, which is spelled L in English, it is spelled L-E-E-A-Z-A-R. He was the second high priest of Israel. He was the son of Aaron, who was the first high priest, and he was also Moses' brother. Eleazar was thereby the leader of the Levite tribe of Israel in the generation of the Exodus, the generation of people who came out of slavery in Egypt. So, <laughs> if Jesus, in naming the destitute character in his, in his parable, Lazarus, is actually associating him with this 
ancient Eleazar character, archetypal uh, patriarchal character, he's actually placing this penniless, discarded outcast on a level with the most esteemed and revered individual in the religious social order, the high priest. I mean, that is a big deal. If that's what's going on, I don't actually know. Um, but what if the Lazarus in this parable was connected to the other form of the name Eleazar, spelled slightly different in English? This would be uh, E-L-E, no, E-L-I-E-Z-A-R, okay? Well, <laughs> who was that? There was actually a couple people with that name in the Torah. But the one with the most significant part to play in the big story, I, I should say, was actually Eleazar, the associate slash servant slash right-hand man of Abraham himself in the book of Genesis, which just kind of like blows your mind because if this Eleazar is who Jesus is evoking in the character of Lazarus, right? How much more poignant is the scene in the afterlife when, when Lazarus is comforted by Abraham? It's like, Whoa, we got Lazarus and Eleazar in Genesis. Now in Luke, in this parable, we got Lazarus and Abraham. And then Laz Abraham refuses to send his servant back to earth to warn the rich man's brothers. Whoa, this, this stuff is like, what, what is going on here? Okay, but not only that, okay. If Lazarus is meant to connect with Abraham's Eleazar, people who know the many stories of Abraham might likely recognize a certain episode where that Eleazar plays an important role. That would be in Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham and Sarah are relaxing at home. They're chilling at the crib, and they see three strangers walking down the road approaching their tent. Now, Abraham gets his little you know, uh, divine spidey sense on, and he thinks these people might be sent by God. So he runs out there and he asks him them if they will stop and allow him to serve them. And they accept his invitation. And then on the spot, he, Sarah, and Eleazar, Lazarus, prepare dinner for these guests. Okay, they show this hospitality and welcome and service. And after they eat, it is revealed what do you know that these three strangers are actually angels or some kind of divine beings sent by God? Who knew? And at that moment, they tell Sarah and Abraham that Sarah will become pregnant and they will be the parents of a great nation. So, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an amazing connection, but in this parable that Jesus told, in which Abraham serves as a comforter and judge, and Lazarus, or Eleazar, is a man who dies outside the gate of a rich person who could have easily helped him, Jesus may be invoking a story about one of the pivotal moments in our faith history, when God's covenant with God's people is established, and that story is a story of hospitality and service. Abraham and Eleazar served three strangers who turned out to be angels in the precise way that nobody ever served Lazarus. You see, if anybody had treated Lazarus in the parable the way that Lazarus in Genesis treated strangers that came his way, 
then Lazarus in the parable wouldn't have died in the street the way that he did. Get what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> now, I don't actually know if we're supposed to draw those connections that I just drew. <laughs> but I believe the connections are there. Okay. Whether Jesus is connecting the story of Lazarus to either of the stories of Eleazar in the Torah, people can debate that. But regardless, the name Lazarus still means God helps. God is my help. And, you know, this is a word people then and now desperately need to hear. That where there is suffering, where there is dire hardship, where there is fear and hunger and despair, God sees, God knows, God cares, God will help. But in, the name, in this parable about a man named Lazarus, the name God helps is also a bitter word because it's clear that while God claims to care, nobody else will give a moment's consideration. We may get help from God. We're not going to get help from anybody. Okay? You know, the rich man doesn't help. The people on the street don't help. You can say God helps, nobody else cares. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, right? I'm trusting that God loves me, but if he does, I swear he's the only one. Okay. Have you ever felt that way? Many of us have. Okay. I should slow down for a second. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say absolutely nobody cared about Lazarus because there's a very important little detail in this parable uh, that that indicates Lazarus is not completely alone he is not completely abandoned this side of the grave Lazarus has friends in this parable who we shouldn't overlook who are Lazarus's comrades who's looking out for Lazarus in this parable <laughs> the dogs friends there are dogs who come by and they nurse his wounds. I've actually heard people talk about this parable who see the dogs as one more detail of just how low and destitute Lazarus was. His suffering was so abject, his humiliation so complete. Look, ugh, the dogs are licking his sores. Gross. How demeaning. Right? And I, I actually think that interpretation is wrong. If you've ever been friendly with a dog, if you have some kind of cut, you know, you know how this is. You know how dogs are. If you've got a scrape or an injury of some kind, a dog who loves you will lick your wound. It's a little gross, but, you know, it's a dog's way of caring for you. It's a dog doing what a dog can do. I've seen my own children their little stubbed, you know, what, you know, whatever, licked by the dogs, <laughs> you know. And in this story, I think the dogs coming and licking Lazarus's sores is some kind of solidarity of the wretched. I do. Okay. So I think Jesus includes the detail of the dogs to convict us to convict all of us because if the rich man had done even what the dogs did which is to say if the rich man had done what he was capable of doing the story would have been different but he was not willing to offer anything even something meager okay. a couple of other concerns come to mind 
regarding how the details of this story are commonly interpreted and retold. Some people have said about this parable, for example, that Lazarus was a leper. Okay? Like, just like many people that Jesus ministered with who had skin conditions that made them socially and religiously untouchable. Um, it's important to note that according to this parable, Lazarus did not have leprosy. He had sores on his skin. Okay? He, he, the word that is used to describe these sores is not the ancient Hebrew word for the skin diseases that made a person ritually unclean according to the purity codes in the book of Leviticus. No, the sores that Lazarus had are actually described with the same word that describes the sores that Job had on his skin, if you recall the story of Job having sores on his skin. And it is indicated by a different word in ancient Hebrew. It's still a health situation of physical suffering, but there is no religious impurity involved. Now, you or, my, you or I might not care about that distinction. Were the sores leprous or not? Was he ritually unclean or not? What difference does that make? I mean, well, in terms of what's truly right or wrong, it makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. If somebody needs help, they should be helped regardless of what category their illness is in, right? But it is at least meaningful for us to know as we study this parable that in Jesus' day, many people had a very firmly entrenched belief that certain folks could not be touched. They could not be approached or their impurity would contaminate anybody who got near them. And you could see a situation, right, when a person who has the means to help somebody might marshal this religious thinking about impurity as an excuse. Well, you know, I would have helped that person. I would love to help this person who is in need. Surely I would. I'm, I'm a nice guy, right? I would, but I can't, you see, because they're ritually unclean. Ugh, you know, I, what are you going to do? There's nothing, there's really nothing that I can do in this situation, okay? And so it's important for us to at least recall Lazarus was not a leper. And so this parable allows no room for those grasping at excuses, okay? Another detail I've heard people get wrong in talking about this story is they call Lazarus a beggar. If Lazarus had begged for money or food, that would have been fine. I mean, if you're starving to death and you beg for food, that seems like an appropriate thing to do to me. Okay? But it's important for us to note that he did not beg. Lazarus, in the text of this story, does not ask anybody for anything. He doesn't ask the rich man for anything. He doesn't ask anybody, nobody. Even in his hunger, the parable said that he wished or that he longed for the crumbs off the rich man's pay table, but he didn't beg. He didn't even ask. And in fact, to my mind, I, just the way this story strikes me, I don't know if it strikes you this way, but the most haunting detail about Lazarus in the whole parable is that he never speaks at all. All of the speaking in this story is done by the rich man and Father Abraham. 
And see, we don't hear Lazarus's voice in this story, even though we're watching what happens in his life and in his death and in his life after death. And I think about that a lot. I am really not sure why Jesus told the story this way. He, he didn't name the rich man, but he named Lazarus. But then we hear the words of the rich man, and we don't hear the words of Lazarus. Why is that? He leaves, Jesus leaves us guessing. Right? He leaves us imagining just what Lazarus is thinking through his whole ordeal. And, I mean, he really, who knows what he was thinking? Did Lazarus curse the rich man while he was lying outside of his gate? Did he curse him for being greedy? Or did he pray for the rich man, hoping that he would have a change of heart? Did he do some transcendent sort of thing like Jesus on the cross where he just prays for the healing and the, and the restoration and the, and the growth and the new understanding to enter into the life of this rich man, right? Did he transcend his own pain and his own hunger in a state of spiritual enlightenment? Is that the person that we see when we look at Lazarus? Or did he despair? Did he curse God? Did he cry out to heaven with the words of the suffering servant, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, any of those. I mean, we really don't know what Lazarus was thinking, how he handled his uh, you know, impossibly difficult circumstances. We don't know, and maybe Jesus didn't tell us what Lazarus was thinking because he wanted us to imagine all those possibilities. Okay. But one thing Jesus didn't want us to be unclear about, one thing he didn't want us guessing about, is whether Lazarus would be okay in the end. Right? He wanted to be completely clear about that part of the story, that Lazarus finds comfort in the by and by even though he should have found comfort much sooner. Okay? Whether the specific details, I mentioned this last week, are the specific details of the way the parable depicts heaven, are we supposed to take that literally? I don't know. I, it's, I, I'm doubtful of that. Right? Are the, are the details of the, the afterlife uh, given in this parable meant to be emblematic? Okay? Um, regardless of that, Jesus wants us to clearly understand that care and nurture and healing are Lazarus's final destination. And in that, Jesus is making the claim that love is greater than suffering. Love is greater than abandonment and death. Grace will triumph over misery. And the victims of this cruel age will be lifted up and they will be comforted in the fullness of of God's time. Now, as I mentioned last week, this parable presents a vision that is awaiting people without regard for the criteria that modern people often associate with going to heaven, right? So Lazarus didn't, quote, deserve heaven because he was a member of the right group or a believer in the right doctrine. And we don't have any information about Lazarus earning a place in heaven 
from being a morally upright person during his life. Lazarus could have been a saint, but eh, we don't really know, you know. We simply know that he suffered terribly on this side, on one side of the grave, and he was comforted on the other. The idea of heaven that is expressed in this story is that it exists for everyone. And it is defined by the basic features of life that people should be able to enjoy on earth, but too often do not. Care and affection, provision and protection, no suffering, no fear. Okay? There is a broad expectation insinuated in this story that everybody deserves these things and thus everybody belongs in heaven. But there is this one particular kind of danger that the story shines a light on, that some people get to experience the goodness of heaven before they go to heaven. Right? Some people have the privilege of experiencing love and joy and provision and wealth. Right? And as, the, the Abraham, as Abraham said to the rich man, you know, you had your good things while you were alive on earth. Right? You know, privileged people rarely view their own lives as being like a little bit of heaven here on earth. I know I don't. <laughs> right? It, it takes real mental conditioning and focus to think of your life as in that way. But this parable encourages us to think a, a little bit more like that, that comfort and care and provision and having wonderful things to eat and having wonderful things to wear, right? And having the ability to, you know, pull out money and pay for things that we need, that these are actually heavenly things. And that if we have privilege, we are getting some of what is coming and what God wants to have in store for all people, right? And that, you know, in a way, if you want to think of it like that, we're getting some of this stuff, some of these fruits of heaven a little early, okay? And according to this parable, for those who have privilege in this life, it is therefore doubly important that we live as if we are citizens of the kingdom where not just we have nice things, right? And we have enough to eat. We have a nice place to live and a, and a safe environment in which to raise our children. But that everybody has these needs met. Right? And everybody's pain gets comforted and everybody's wounds get healed. Okay? Because we are living with these heavenly gifts and heavenly privileges now. We need to live as people, as citizens of the kingdom, where those things are offered and available and enjoyed by everyone. And therefore, we must use the treasure that is entrusted to us on earth to alleviate suffering and hardship on earth to hasten the coming of God's kingdom on earth, to use earthly treasure, to build up treasure in heaven. Okay? But if we use earthly treasure 
only for our own personal edification and gratification if we use what God has given us to serve our own pride and our own appetites and not to serve God's family, then we will in effect spend away our heavenly inheritance on foolishness. And in the fullness of time, we'll see that the coffers are indeed empty. And that's what happened to the rich man in this parable. And maybe this gets at why Jesus doesn't have Lazarus speak in the parable. Perhaps the fact that Lazarus doesn't speak is meant to emphasize just how obvious this whole thing is. You know, what is right? It is clear what is right. Right? It is clear what is being asked and, and what we are called to do with what we have. I mean, you can, you can give money to this worthy cause or that worthy cause, and sometimes you, have to, you struggle to make a decision like that. But the question of whether or not we are called to use our resources to serve the suffering and the poor and the sick in our time, I mean, that is obvious. The poor are right there. The moral choice of sharing food should be the simplest thing in the world. And it is what all religious teaching for centuries has stated explicitly. Uh, just an example, Isaiah 58, uh, verse 7, Share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover them. And do not hide yourself from your own can. Okay, maybe, maybe Lazarus doesn't speak as just a way of emphasizing, like, I'm sorry, but the poor person who's starving to death outside your gate does not have to come up with an eloquent argument. <laughs> like, come on, right? Now contrast this with what the, re the rich man requests when he is in Hades. I mean, he requests that Abraham send Lazarus back from the dead. Right? The most over-the-top kind of like spectacular message, right? To warn people the, the most obvious thing in the world, that they need to be compassionate. And Abraham's like, what? <laughs> like, are you serious? Abraham says, no, your people don't need that. Okay? Your brothers don't need to have like Lazarus walk out of the grave and explain this to them. Right? Human beings do not need a supernatural uh, intervention to be able to recognize and value the suffering of the people around them. Like, we don't need some kind of suspension of the laws of physics in order to know what is right. right? You know that if somebody needs help, you should help them. It's basic. Don't make excuses. Don't put the responsibility on someone else. Okay? You know? <laughs> Like, if we only had Lazarus come back from the dead to explain why kindness matters, we would have been kind. Come on! Guys, no. Save the rationalization. It's not doing anything for anyone. Instead, make your home in heaven. The heavenly hereafter and the heavenly here and now. Okay? Live out heavenly kindness live heavenly peacemaking live heavenly generosity live heavenly service heavenly compassion live with a heavenly hope for life beyond death and since you're gonna see lazarus on the other side of the grave make friends with him now amen <laughs>